This is Cabernet and True Crime, the place where good wine and true crime come together. Well, that's just going to have to be cut off. <laughs> I just filmed that intro, not even filmed it. I just recorded that intro. I mean, no joke, three or four times. And it's just, you know what? It's nine o'clock at night. Your girl is just a little bit sleepy, and it, that's just going to have to be the best it's going to be today. So there we go. Hello, friends. Um, I'm your host, Jana. This is Cabernet and True Crime, if you couldn't hear it before. I got a belly full of butter chicken and naan bread, and I didn't realize how tired that was going to make me, and here we are. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of where we're at. Welcome to the party. Not so much of an intro this week as much as last week it rambled on for quite a while uh it's summer and i've basically spent it working my butt off being aggressively loved by a rottweiler and i went to a demolition derby (laughs) so that's pretty much all i've been up to uh summer there's so much pressure in the summer to be like social and like active and outside and doing stuff and that's fine but also like it's exhausting (laughs) i don't know a better way to put that it's just kind of it's just exhausting in general um we're winding down into my my all-time favorite season as i've mentioned to anybody who will stop moving long enough for me to mention it to them fall is the best season ever um because sundays are literal free day just to hang out on the couch and like eat dips i love football season Uh, it's the most relaxing of all seasons because you're inside watching people play football and that's delightful to me. I mean, really, all I'm saying is that I I can't ask for more than that. (laughs) So I'm looking forward to the the pressure being off of like having to be a social little baby butterfly because it's it's just, it becomes a lot after a while. Uh, So last week's episode, let's clear the air on that, was a little bit of a stinker. Um, (laughs) I prefer something with just a little bit more facts and some well-documented information, and that is not what last week was at all, uh, and I know this, I mean, I guess I kind of knew that going into it, but I was hoping that, like, I could, like, salvage it, and the time really came where I was like, I'm recording this, and it wasn't so par because I, I feel like I did my due diligence on researching it, like, adequately and correctly, but there just wasn't the information out there to find. So I, I'll claim ownership on that one. That one, uh, that one was me. Um, it was a practice, though, for me, and done is sometimes better than perfect because sometimes I can be quite the perfectionist and I'll never get anything done because I will just sit and tinker with something forever. So I'm okay with that. It was an exercise in maybe a little bit of self-care and having realistic expectations on something. Um, And we'll just leave that as it is. So this week's case, um, I actually stumbled on it highly accidentally. I I was researching. So if you follow the Instagram page every Saturday and Sunday, I like to post just situations where cases were cold and they got solved for whatever reason. Um, Just really because there are so many cold cases out there in the world and it is really reassuring to see that like work is being done and these cases are being solved and these families are finally getting closure on their, you know, their heartbreak 
And so I really enjoy um, being able to post those. It's kind of uplifting. Um, and it's always a good reminder that, you know, there should always be hope for these types of cases. And I, I just, I really think that new DNA evidence is bringing forth and uncovering a whole mess of cold cases, um, which now might be able to solve, be, be able to be solved because of that. So that's, that's actually very exciting to me. And so when I started looking into this case a little bit more, I was just really compelled and felt the need to, uh, kind of cover this one and it's actually cool because this still has ongoing developments happening I'm hoping that um, at some point in the near future I can update more on kind of more testing that's going on and that's all really cool to me so I'm excited to cover this one and if you're new here (laughs) I always I always really struggle to figure out where I want to start a story at Um, Because sometimes it doesn't always make sense to start in a certain place. And so for this one, I decided that sometimes it's just best to start at the beginning, at least the beginning as we know it. So it's January 12th, 1976 in Lyle, Illinois. For the record books, it looks like Lyle and all of these um, things that are going to be happening are in suburbs of Chicago. So freshly 16-year-old Pamela Marr, Um, She goes to Downers Grove South High School. She's a junior there. She had been hanging out at a friend's house. Around 9.30, 9.45 p.m., Pamela leaves to go get a soda from a nearby McDonald's, um, but she doesn't come back. Pamela's parents call the police to report her missing pretty quickly because the McDonald's wasn't that far away, and it was odd that she hadn't been seen by anybody yet. And I looked up the day. I'm pretty sure it was a Monday. So, I mean, it was obviously a school night. So very interesting that she hadn't come home yet. The following morning, someone was walking along the street near Benedictine College, and they spotted a purse which had Pamela Marr's identification in it. They called the authorities in, and Pamela's lifeless body was found on the other side of the guardrail. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled to death, most likely with a rubber hose that was found nearby. Uh, She was found six miles away from her home, and about a mile away from McDonald's, she was last known to be headed to. She was face down but fully dressed. DNA evidence was present and collected from the scene. I read in an article that a, well, I almost said girl, but woman, a classmate named Cindy Evans, remembered saying goodbye to Pamela after school on that fateful day. She said that walking around alone wasn't unusual. You didn't have to worry about that kind of thing. But she also stated that Pamela was shy and she would have never gotten into a car willingly with a stranger. And we've heard about that before. Um, And just in general, the 70s were a different time. Latchkey kids. um, My husband was born in the 70s, late 70s. But, you know, you came home when your mom whistled for you to come home or you had to be home by the time dinner was ready or when the streetlights came on. It wasn't parents were not helicoptering in the way they do now and I mean you didn't have cell phones so you really couldn't you really couldn't eyeball your kid that well which was I mean fine except for situations like this so even though there was a good amount of evidence in Pamela Marr's case the the case still goes cold on June 23rd 1980 25 year old Deborah Colliander is abducted from a parking lot in a shopping center in Aurora Illinois She is taken to her attacker's apartment where she is sexually assaulted and then released. 
She notifies police of the crime, and a man named Bruce Lindahl is arrested and charged. He paid his bail and was released to the public while awaiting trial, which is set for sometime in 1981. On October 7, 1980, Deborah Colliander goes missing after leaving work. Because the key witness has gone missing, the trial is canceled and all charges are dropped. Which, I mean, okay, like, doesn't that seem just the slightest bit suspicious? I understand that the possibility of um, maybe a key witness might get cold feet about going on trial or, you know, might back down or decide they don't want to press charges anymore. And I think that's all just a completely different situation. But you've got someone who obviously had something wrong happen to her who wants to go to trial against the person who did these things to her. And then she suddenly goes missing because if she went missing from work, I'm assuming there was a missing persons report put together for that. So I'm just curious how much they really investigated into this or was Bruce Lindahl ever questioned about it because he was the person she was going to trial against and he was out on bail. Um, I don't know that information, but I am, I am just curious as to what did that situation look like? So they just moved on from that. I mean, nobody, nobody ever said anything. Nobody ever did anything. It just, it, it, we kind of just skipped past that altogether. So on April 4th, 1981, 18-year-old Charles Huber Jr. was out and about shopping in Naperville. Once again, another suburb of Chicago. So this is all happening near and around Chicago. And Charles runs into a guy. He actually went by Chuck. So Chuck runs into a guy who is, of course, Bruce, if you have not figured out, he's he's kind of the the villain of the well he's the villain in real life but he's the villain of the story of well as well i don't know what just happened there i went on an entire rant and it is all gone now anywho he's the villain i I don't think i needed to tell you that but he chuck runs into bruce who is our villain and if you haven't noticed the trend here you're about to so bruce and chuck bowl together for a little while and they become friendly um Bruce suggests that they go back to his girlfriend's house to drink alcohol. Now, mind you, Bruce is 28 at the time and Chuck is 18. And as I've stated just so many times that I think it is weird to have a relationship with a teenager in general. I mean, like friendship, right? Once again, I am which this surprises people for some reason. I am 31 years old, um, in my 30s now, and my stepdaughter is 18. And aside from her being my stepdaughter and, like, the few little things we have in common, like, being friends with a teenager is kind of weird, I think. Like, especially a teenager that you don't know and you just meet out bowling. I I don't know. That just might be me. Um it's probably just me, but I, I think that's weird. And I think like you don't have anything in common with this teenager and then to invite like as an adult to, to I just feel like there's something nefarious about it. Like I don't I don't feel like that's a natural thing to want to do to be like, hey teenager, I'm almost thirty. Let's go drink beer at my girlfriend's house. Just seems it's like a very gross invitation to me. Um but looking at this from Chuck's point of view, who is an eighteen year old obviously, I mean, why would you, you know, this is cool. Like there's an older person, like maybe taking an interest in you. And from what I've read and fuck Bruce Lindahl, first of all, but I heard that he was very charismatic. And so you have this charismatic guy who's offering you free booze. 
I mean, I could see exactly how a teenager would be lured into that situation um, pretty easily. And I just think that's an abuse of, not power, because I don't want to say that Bruce Lindell was powerful at all, but it's an abuse of trust and it's an abuse of like you just being older and seeming more knowledgeable and seeming more just with your with your life together and I don't I don't think obviously he's a predator but I think it's easy for a teenager or even a woman to fall into that to believe that that's like an organic invitation when it's it's not at all so Chuck agrees and they go back to Bruce's apartment um I I the what happens here is completely unknown but something happens as the evening progresses leading Bruce to attack Chuck with a kitchen knife, and um, Bruce Lindell stabs him 28 times. In the attack, though, Bruce Lindell stabs himself in the thigh, and he hits his own femoral artery, which is a a very, very large vein artery, they're different, in his leg. And he loses so much blood that Bruce Lindell actually dies in this interaction as well. So this altercation occurs, and both Chuck and Bruce Lindahl die in this. Um, from an article, I read that Bruce's girlfriend was there, and I think she had been sleeping the whole time, and she had no recollection or anything of what had happened. And I don't remember what article I read this in, but um, people speculated that Bruce's plan was to was to kill Chuck and then kill his girlfriend and make it seem like Chuck had killed his girlfriend. So, when police arrived at the time, they assumed this had been, like, a one-and-done deal. Uh, The two men had been fighting or something, and then both had perished in the attack. Like I said, Bruce's girlfriend had been asleep, so I don't think she could have offered up much insight into the event because she was snoozing. And that was that. It didn't seem like anything crazy had happened. It just seemed like that was what it was. Um, not a whole lot is really known about Bruce Lindahl. So I mentioned last week that I think it's useful to look at cases like this and see if there's any type of pattern or anything that occurs during childhood or early teenage years where maybe, you know, you could point out, hey, something is amok here, right? Um, Bruce Lindahl was born in January of 1953 in Illinois, and he had relatively normal parents. He went to college. He graduated in the mid-70s. He had a degree in electromechanics. He worked. He had friends. He had colleagues. And, like, everybody spoke super highly of him, said he was a super charismatic guy, had a great personality, um, you know, I think I read somewhere that people described him as being magnetic, that he had a personality that people wanted to go to. And to be fair, we also heard that I'm pretty sure about people like, I think Ted Bundy was one of those people too, who just really had an air of charisma about them. And that's how he was able to lure so many people into helping him or falling for his tricks because he was charismatic too. Um, so everybody mentioned that he was super charismatic and really likable, except for the part where he had an incredibly short fuse and would, you know, get aggressive towards others sometimes. And like, that's, that's the caveat, right? That's that piece of somebody being super ridiculously charismatic, but also having like a really angry, dark, physically aggressive side. So looking more into Bruce Lindell, right? 
Uh, before 1981, April of 1981, he had a relatively clean record. Um, he had been arrested on possession of marijuana in 1976 and had also been arrested for the rape and kidnapping charges in 1980. And he had also, and we're going to get into this, and I don't remember exactly what it was, but he had unrelated charges as well for something else. But he never, he never had a conviction and so he, he pretty much looked clean to the books, right? Like, he'd been arrested a couple times, but uh, nothing super crazy. I mean, if it's not going to show up on the record, I don't know. I don't know if, if you're arrested for something but not convicted with it. I don't necessarily know if that would show up on your record or after, after what amount of time it would show up for you. So he seems like a relatively just harmless guy who up until, you know, his his altercation with Chuck and that whole situation happening. I mean, it just seemed, like I said, it seemed like a one-off. It seemed like a one-off situation. So, flash forward to 1993. Pamela Mara's case is reopened, and they're looking for pieces of evidence that may have been missed. And really, no real developments were made until 2019, where the DNA found at the crime scene was reinvestigated. Um, and this is done using the same technique that brought down the Golden State Killer. And with that, a match was found. So if you're new to the true crime world or you're unaware of how the Golden State Killer was caught, let me tell you. So genetic genealogy has suddenly become a super huge thing in the United States law enforcement. And it really all started in 2018, April of 2018, when uh, California law authorities announced the ID and arrest of the Golden State Killer. Um, and this person, just to remind you or refresh your memory, was responsible for 12 killings, 51 rapes, and more than 120 burglaries in California between 1974 and 1986. So police had basically contacted a third party to look at the genetics so they're genetic genealogists um but it wasn't necessarily through the police station it was through a third party um <laughs> this genetics and point well they pointed to um sorry i don't know what just happened there i feel like that happens a lot um they were able to run the dna and they were able to find a match to a family member of uh oh, crap i lost my place i should know this i'm sorry Okay, sorry. Um, they will check uh, the DNA against a database of basically people who willingly give up their DNA, like 23andMe. It's not 23andMe, though. Um, it's none of those big uh, names, I don't think. They're kind of smaller agencies. I'm not entirely sure. But so it pointed to a family member of Joseph James D'Angelo after they had uploaded. Um, so they reanalyzed the DNA that was found at the crime scenes to um, this company service actually called GED Match, and then they compared it with the DNA records of hundreds of thousands of people who wanted to research their family tree. Uh, these third-party companies analyze DNA in a way more detailed way than law enforcement does. Um, I think they have the lab equipment and the funding to be able to do this. So it examines hundreds of thousands of points of the chromosomes in your body in your DNA um, against other people. So it's actually, in layman's terms, to not get super scientific about it, 
these third-party agencies are able to identify more points of the DNA to give you a more like accurate reading of whether or not these are matches or not. Um, usually, DNA through the police office offices is through done through PCR, um, a technique that I have moderate remembering of I it's been a while since I've done that but like basically in college we were able to like swab our cheeks and like do the PCR and like you're like oh this is what my DNA looks like um but it, it, it just tells you whether it's a match or not but it doesn't get into the specifics of things so th- th- basically now that they know they can do this and they know there's some type of accuracy to it and you know you're getting to the point where this is becoming kind of a more widespread thing um I'm trying to find a great way to put this. So there's a new rush to keep moving this forward. And especially catching somebody like the Golden State Killer, catching, you know, finally getting them behind bars, even though Joseph James, wow, Joseph James D'Angelo is literally a dried up, dirty old raisin of a man. He's behind bars now. I At least I think he's still alive. Hang on, pause. I just Googled this and I'm shocked for several reasons. I'm sorry that I'm kind of all over the place. Um, he is only 77 and he looks awful it's probably from the fucking karmic that he's earning for his karmic redemption here on that but he looks like shit i didn't mean to swear so much this time but i'm getting to a point here he looks like absolute shit um he is still alive in case you're curious he is 77 years old so do with that information what you will so back, I don't know how I got sidebarred on that, but back to the point. So catching the Golden State Killer, huge, huge win for the true crime community, huge, huge win for this DNA analysis, right? Like they were able to close out this case and like so many families and so many victims of the families, families of the victims were able to get closure on their cases. But there was a, a good handful of people who were kind of upset that they submitted their personal information for the purpose of finding relatives. And now that DNA was being used to investigate their families for crimes. And on a personal note, um, if I had a family member, personally, who was raping or killing people, I wouldn't give a hoot. Um, And I would hope that they get caught for it. I would submit my own DNA in a heartbeat if there were any suspicions. Family or, family or not, I mean, don't commit, like, heinous crimes, man. Like, I, if, if you... Okay, here's my deal, right? Like, if you are in a situation where your DNA gets left at a crime scene, you are obviously committing a crime that is just of the highest and most despicable nature. And that's on you. I mean, if you don't want to get in trouble, don't commit crimes. And I, I just, I think, like I said, if you're, if you're committing a crime where your DNA is left at the scene, like, so either you're, you're raping or you're murdering or you're doing something, I have no forgiveness for you. I don't feel bad. I don't, I don't, I think you deserve to rot in hell for doing something like that to somebody else because you took away their choices and you took away their rights to being able to live a free life. And even if, you know, you're just out there sexually assaulting people and you're not even killing them, right? Like if that's not even the second half you go to, still, you deserve to rot in hell. And I don't care if your DNA, if your DNA is found there for that reason, then I hope you get caught, whether it's through your great grandma 
you know, submitting her DNA because she wants to find her relatives over in, you know, South Africa. I don't know. Like, it, it, that's, if that's what it comes to, I, I don't feel bad. And it's not like I... <laughs> Imagine, because I'm sure this would happen too, like imagine if, if you're out there committing crimes, right? And like you find out your family member like is trying to find a, another relative. I it just, the, the situation of itself is just very weird. And on some level, I understand like the idea of don't give away your DNA and maybe that's just me, but I'm just regular old me. I'm not that special. So why would the government want my DNA? And at the same time, if they did want my DNA that bad, they'd just take it. I don't feel like it'd be that hard to acquire it, you know? I mean, like, you've seen cop shows. What, can they just, like... <laughs> I don't think that's really how it works. But you see, like, somebody blows their nose and the police run over there and grab the tissue out of the trash. I don't think that's actually real life. I'm just saying, personally, if they wanted it, they could get it. Also, we all have cell phones. The government already knows so much about you. They know exactly where you are. They know exactly what you're looking up. They're recording everything you do. And also, I'm not out here committing crimes, and, and I guess this is probably just very naive, and I just, I don't know if it's because my anxiety is already so high and I already have so many other things to worry about. It just that is not one of the things that I'm worried about, personally. I, I guess I, I have too many other things happening <laughs> to, to be concerned about what people are using my DNA for. So there's that. All right, I don't know what that sidebar was all about. Let's continue on. Back to the topic at hand. Okay, so in 2019... Uh, police slash detectives working on the cold case for Pamela Marr run the DNA evidence against a bank of DNA. Well, they don't because I just explained it. They have a third party do it. But it comes back with a hit. Pamela's killer was Bruce Lindahl. So now snippets of information are starting to fall into place. Offenses that had seemed minor and one-offs are possibly the workings of a full-blown serial killer. So several stories start to come together. On March 6th, 1979, three years after Bruce had killed Pamela, Lindell lures 20-year-old Annette Lazar into his home under the pretense of selling her marijuana. Lindell sexually assaulted her at gunpoint, and he forces her to agree to more sexual encounters and then lets her go. Of course, Annette contacts the police to report the crime, but A, she had a history of drug use, and B, the house that Bruce had been living in was owned by a police officer and friend of Bruce named Dave Torres. So, of course, her story was not taken seriously, and Bruce Lindahl was never charged with any crime. On November 5th, Deborah McCall goes missing. She left Downers Grove North High School, not the same high school Pamela attended. She went to South. Um, but she was never seen again. After Lindahl's death, several photos of young girls were found in his apartment, and Deborah McCall's was in the collection. She and all trace of her have disappeared, and they have not been found. Her case is still an open investigation. Um, it's in the, the, the Charlie Project. Uh, it's suspected that Bruce Lindahl had something to do with her going missing, obviously. On December 22nd, Bruce attacked a woman in Aurora after she refused to have sex with him for money. It was a moderately public affair, so he fled the scene before he caused a scene. And the woman, of course, called police and reported the crime, but Lindahl wasn't in the lineup they put together for her, so he was never identified at that time. And at some point, um, though it's not exactly known when, so the story actually came from an article where um, 
a Chicago detective, Chris Loudon, recalls snippets of evidence they attributed to Bruce Lindahl over the years. Uh, apparently, Bruce had been driving down the road and got pulled over by the police. There was a woman in Bruce's car who was unconscious and had a pretty bad head wound. Police had asked, what are you doing with her? And Bruce lied and said that he was taking her to the hospital, but he was going in the wrong direction. And thank you to, there's no name for this police officer, but thank you to this police officer because he sensed something was wrong and said absolutely not and called an ambulance for the girl. And she was promptly taken from Bruce Lindahl's company and taken to the hospital. Uh, Once there, she was examined and it was found that she'd been sexually assaulted. Uh, The woman didn't remember what had happened, but um, she thought it was possible that something was slipped in her drink uh, and no charges were filed. As I mentioned previously, on June 23rd, Deborah Colliander is kidnapped and sexually assaulted by Bruce Lindell. She presses charges but goes missing on October 7th before the trial can take place. Her body was actually found in 1982, and after the announcement was made public, a man who I've read in some articles was just a random person, and in some other articles it was his friend, Um, But this man contacted the police stating that Bruce Lindahl had offered him $2,000, a handgun, whiskey, and pills to, quote, get rid of her. Deborah Colliander's murder is directly attributed to Bruce Lindahl because obviously he had a motive to kill her. On January 28, 1981, Lindahl was convicted for tapping and recording people's phones to extort them. In the process of his arrest, Lindahl attacked a police officer and he was charged with resisting arrest, illegal possession of weapons, and assault. He was released on bail and was free during the investigation, which, as we know, less than two months later, Bruce Lindahl would perish taking the life of his final victim, Chuck. So, at this point, I, I the, the progression, as you can see, we see this in a lot of um, cases of, you know, serial killers where, the pace starts to pick up, everything, the ante starts to ramp up. So I think him going from this situation to, um, you know, from like all he was doing was, I mean, all he was doing, but he was tapping and recording people's phone calls, right? Obviously that's fucked up, but it's, it's certainly not a violent crime. The fact that he turns violence, turns violent and, and goes towards the the path of attacking a police officer thinking like that was going to go over well, I think just really, in my opinion, kind of shows how unhinged he was. Um, and then, yeah, less than two months later to turn around and, and do, you know, what he did is just, I I don't know. I, I wish, I wish I understand the hindsight is 2020 right? I wish he hadn't been able to make his bail and was in prison. I wish any of these times, you know, he, he wasn't able to cause the crimes that he committed just because, I don't know, the legal justice system is such a beautiful thing and also such a terrible thing at the same time. And it depends on what side you're on and it depends on what you know, because obviously we know how this plays out. And obviously we know because he's able to post bail, like what happens next. But there's no way to know that in the moment. And obviously it's his legal right to, you know, pay bail and get out. So, I mean, I don't know. There's the the scale of the justice system. That's really what it boils down to. Um, so Bruce Lindell, 
it's widely unknown how many people lost their lives at the hand of this fucking psychopath. And as of right now, he is suspected to be responsible for 12 murders and nine sexual assaults that happened in the Chicago suburbs from 1974 to 1981. In that time frame, though, 70 girls and women were killed. And it's a wonder of how many of those Bruce is responsible for. Pamela Marr's case was cold for 44 years before the breakthrough of familial DNA screening. Cold cases are being closed and solved all the time now from new breakthroughs in science and technology. And who's to say we won't be able to close more? I think even throughout all this darkness that we're seeing um, just in general and the darkness of the true crime community, it is also, it's also uplifting to know that these families can get closure now. Some of these really old cold cases are finally being solved through this type of evidence. And I just think that's amazing. I think that's incredible. Um, yeah, I guess those, those are my thoughts on that. Um, I'm looking forward to kind of keeping updated and keeping posted on this one, just because like I said, there's still active, um, they're still actively testing DNA right now from crime scenes, especially in that area and comparing them to Bruce Lindell's now that they have it. So I think, I think that's really cool that, um, some of those families might get closure now. I just think that's a neat, a neat scientific development. Science is just so cool and I'm happy for it. I'm thankful that, you know, there's people out there who are still doing their due diligence to try and, Give families closure just because, and I guess this is a little last minute rant, but like I, I know, and I've done, I've done a podcast and I've done a, um, YouTube about it, but just, just the daunting level of cold cases there are out there that there, it's just growing exponentially and it seems really hopeless. It seems super hopeless because there are so many new crimes being committed every day and, I mean, if you've ever seen the first 48, statistically, if you don't pretty much know who did it right away or have a good idea of who who did the crime pretty much immediately, the odds of the case going cold are so high. They're so high. And even in, even in today's world where we have cell phones and CCTV and security cameras and ring doorbells, I mean, cases are still going cold at an alarming rate, and I think it's really cool to see the scientific community and, you know, just advancements that we have maybe be able to combat that growth and possibly slow it down. I, I, I don't know. These, those are just my thoughts. I'm optimistic about it. Um, just in general, I, I really hope that, you know, and with that too, other sidebar, with the true crime community, there has been an influx of, I think, tips coming forth from the true crime community. I saw the other day an article that, um, like, a cold case had new leads and was reopened up based off of um, evidence or, like, a not necessarily evidence, but a, a couple of pieces of things that a uh, true crime podcaster actually put together, and now they're reopening the case for it. And I just think that is so cool. I think, I said last week, I think the true crime community can be really icky. And I think there are really icky people out there who 
are gross. I don't, I don't know how to word it. There's people who, you know, fantasize and fetishize about serial killers. And I, I think those are the type of people who really make this community look bad. And I mean, are we all victims of it or, you know, real guilty of it? Yeah, I'd say, I think so. I mean, I, nobody's perfect, but at the same time, I think there are people out there who are really doing their best to try to, you know, help other people. And I think, I think that's when it's not icky is when you're doing it for the right reasons and you're doing it for the right purpose. And that's, I guess that's kind of where I stand on that. So that was this week's episode, um, episode 55. See, I told you we're cruising right along. I think, um, yeah, I, I think this one's interesting and I hope to keep updating on it and I hope you guys liked it. Uh, I, I'm already starting to research next week's episode. See, we're back in this. We're back in this. I love it for us. So with that all being said, friends, I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> uh, your girl's got to work in the morning. So um, I'll see you all next week and I hope you all have the best time.